0: Chapter Sixty nine, Part Four of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six, by Edward Gibbon. CHAPTER 69 PART Four. After his decease, the tedious and equal suspense of the Conclave was fixed by the dexterity of the French faction. A special offer was made and accepted, that, in the term of forty days, they would elect one of the three candidates, who should be named by their opponents. The Archbishop of Bordeaux, a furious enemy of his king and country, was the first on the list. But his ambition was known, and his conscience obeyed the calls of fortune and the commands of a benefactor, who had been informed by a swift messenger, that the choice of a pope was now in his hands. The terms were regulated in a private interview, and with such speed and secrecy was the business transacted, that the unanimous conclave applauded the election of Clement V. The cardinals of both parties were soon astonished by a summons to attend him beyond the Alps, from whence as they soon discovered they must never hope to return. He was engaged, by promise and affection, to prefer the residence of France, and after dragging his court through Poitou and Gascony, and devouring, by his expense, the cities and contents on the road, he finally reposed at Avignon, which flourished above seventy years, the seat of the Roman pontiff and the metropolis of Christendom. By land, by sea, by the Rhône, the position of Avignon was on all sides accessible, the southern provinces of France do not yield to Italy itself, new palaces arose from the accommodation of the Pope and Cardinals, and the arts of luxury were soon attracted by the treasures of the Church. They were already possessed of the adjacent territory, the Venetian county, a populous and fertile spot, and the sovereignty of Avignon was afterwards purchased from the youth and distress of Jane the first queen of Naples, and countess of Provence, for the inadequate price of fourscore thousand florins. Under the shadow of a French monarchy, amidst an obedient people, the popes enjoyed an honorable and tranquil state, to which they long had been strangers. But Italy deplored their absence, and Rome, in solitude and poverty, might repent of the ungovernable freedom which had driven from the Vatican the successor of St. Peter. Her repentance was tardy and fruitless. After the death of the old members, the sacred college was filled with French cardinals, who beheld Rome and Italy with abhorrence and contempt, and perpetuated a series of national, and even provincial, popes, attached by the most indissoluble ties to their native country. The progress of industry had produced and enriched the Italian republics, the era of their liberty Is the most flourishing period of population and agriculture, of manufactures and commerce, and their mechanic labors were gradually refined into the arts of elegance and genius. But the position of Rome was less favorable, the territory less fruitful. The character of the inhabitants was debased by indolence and elated by pride, and they fondly conceived that the tribute of subjects must forever nourish the metropolis of the church and empire. This prejudice was encouraged in some degree by the resort of pilgrims to the shrines of the Apostles, and the last legacy of the popes, the institution of the holy year, was not less beneficial to the people than to the clergy. Since the loss of Palestine, the gift of plenary indulgences, which had been applied to the Crusades, remained without an object, and the most valuable treasure of the Church was sequestered above eight years from public circulation. A new channel was opened by the diligence of Boniface VIII, who reconciled the vices of ambition in avarice, and the Pope had sufficient learning to recollect and revive the secular games which were celebrated in Rome at the conclusion of every century. To sound without danger the depths of popular credulity, a sermon was seasonably pronounced, a report was artfully scattered, some aged witnesses were produced and on the 1st of January of the year 1300, the Church of St. Peter was crowded with the faithful, who demanded the customary indulgence of the holy time. The pontiff, who watched and irritated their devout impatience, was soon persuaded by ancient testimony of the justice of their claim, and he proclaimed a plenary absolution to all Catholics, who, in the course of that year and at every similar period, should respectfully visit the apostolic churches of St. Peter and St. Paul. The welcome sound was propagated through Christendom, and at first from the nearest provinces of Italy, and at length from the remote kingdoms of Hungary and Britain, the highways were thronged with a swarm of pilgrims, who sought to expiate their sins in a journey, however costly or laborious, which was exempt from the perils of military service. All exceptions of rank or sex, of age or infirmity, were forgotten in the common transport, and in the streets and churches many persons were trampled to death by the eagerness of devotion. The calculation of their numbers could not be easy nor accurate, and they have probably been magnified by the Asterisk clergy, well apprised of the contagion of example. Yet we are assured by a judicious historian, who assisted at the ceremony, that Rome was never replenished with less than two hundred thousand strangers and another spectator has fixed at two millions the total concourse of the year. A trifling oblation from each individual would accumulate a royal treasure, and two priests stood night and day, with rakes in their hands, to collect without counting the heaps of gold and silver that were poured on the altar of St. Paul. It was fortunately a season of peace and plenty, and if forage was scarce, if inns and lodgings were extravagantly dear, an exhaustible supply of bread and wine of meat and fish was provided by the policy of boniface and the venal hospitality of the romans from a city without trade or industry all casual riches will speedily evaporate but the avarice and envy of the next generation solicited clement vi to anticipate the distant period of the century the gracious pontiff complied with their wishes afforded rome this poor consolation for his loss and justified the change by the name and practice of the Mosaic Jubilee. His summons was obeyed, and the number, zeal, and liberality of the pilgrims did not yield to the primitive festival, but they encountered the triple scourge of war, pestilence, and famine. Many wives and virgins were violated in the castles of Italy, and many strangers were pillaged or murdered by the savage Romans, no longer moderated by the presence of their bishops. To the impatience of the popes we may ascribe the successive reduction to fifty, thirty-three, and twenty-five years, although the second of these terms is commensurate with the life of Christ. The profusion of indulgences, the revolt of the Protestants, and the decline of superstition have much diminished the value of the Jubilee. Yet even the nineteenth and last festival was a year of pleasure and profit to the Romans and a philosophic smile will not disturb the triumph of the priest or the happiness of the people. In the beginning of the 11th century, Italy was exposed to the feudal tyranny, alike oppressive to the sovereign and to the people. The rights of human nature were vindicated by her numerous republics, who soon extended their liberty and dominion from the city to the adjacent country. The sword of the nobles was broken, their slaves were enfranchised. Their castles were demolished, they assumed the habits of society and obedience, their ambition was confined to municipal honours, and in the proudest aristocracy of Venice or Genoia each patrician was subject to the laws. But the feeble and disorderly government of Rome was unequal to the task of curbing her rebellious sons, who scorned the authority of the magistrate within and without the walls. It was no longer a civil contention between the nobles and plebeians, for— the government of the state. The barons asserted in arms their personal independence, their palaces and castles were fortified against the siege, and their private quarrels were maintained by the numbers of their vassals and retainers. In origin and affection they were aliens to the country, and a genuine Roman, could such have been produced, might have renounced these haughty strangers, who disdained the appellation of citizens, and proudly styled themselves the princes of Rome. After a dark series of revolutions, all records of pedigree were lost, the distinction of surnames were abolished, the blood of the nations was mingled with a thousand channels, and the Goths and Lombards, the Greeks and Franks, the Germans and Normans had obtained the fairest possessions by royal bounty, or the prerogative of valor. These examples might be readily presumed, but the elevation of a Hebrew race to the rank of senators and consuls is an event without a parallel in the long captivity of these miserable exiles. In the time of Leo the Ninth, a wealthy and learned Jew was converted to Christianity and honored at his baptism with the name of his godfather, the reigning pope. The zeal and carriage of Peter, the son of Leo, were signalized in the cause of Gregory the Seventh, who entrusted his faithful adherent with the government of Adrian's mole, the tower of Crescentius, or as it is now called, the castle of St. Angelo. Both the father and the son were the parents of a numerous progeny. Their riches, the fruits of usury, were shared with the noblest families of the city, and so extensive was their alliance, that the grandson of the proselyte was exalted by the weight of his kindred to the throne of St. Peter. A majority of the clergy and people supported his cause. He reigned several years in the Vatican, and it is only the eloquence of St. Benrod and the final triumph of Innocence II that has branded Anacletus with the epithet of Antipope. After his defeat and death, the posterity of Leo is no longer conspicuous, and none will be found of the modern nobles ambitious of descending from a Jewish stock. It is not my design to enumerate the Roman families, which have failed at different periods, are those which are continuing in different degrees of splendor to the present time. The old consular line of the Frangipani discover their name in the generous act of breaking or dividing bread in a time of famine, and such benevolence is more truly glorious than to have enclosed, with their allies the Corsi, a spacious quarter of the city, in the chains of their fortifications. The Savelli, as it should seem a Sabine race, have maintained their original dignity the obsolete surname of the Capizucci is inscribed on the coins of the first senators. The Conti preserve the honor without the estate of the Counts of Signia, and the Annibaldi must have been very ignorant or very modest if they had not descended from the Carthaginian hero. But among, perhaps above, the peers and princes of the city, I distinguish the rival houses of Colonna and Ursini whose private story is an essential part of the annals of modern rome the name and arms of colonna have been the theme of much doubtful etymology nor have the orators and antiquarians overlooked either trajan's pillar or the columns of hercules or the pillar of christ's flagellation or the luminous column that guided the israelites in the desert their first historical appearance in the year eleven hundred and four attests the power and antiquity while it explains the simple meaning of the name. By the usurpation of Cavae, the Colonna provoked the arms of Pascal II, but they lawfully held in the Campania of Rome the hereditary fiefs of Zargarola and Colonna, and the latter of these towns was probably adorned with some lofty pillar, the relic of a villa or temple. They likewise possessed one moiety of the neighboring city of Tusculum, a strong presumption of their descent from the counts of Tusculum, who in the tenth century were the tyrants of the apostolic see, according to their own and the public opinion, the primitive and remote source was derived from the banks of the Rhine, and the sovereigns of Germany were not ashamed of a real or fabulous affinity with the noble race, which in the revolutions of seven hundred years has been often illustrated by merit and always by fortune. About the end of the thirteenth century. The most powerful branch was composed of an uncle and six brothers, all conspicuous in arms or in the honors of the church. Of these, Peter was the elected senator of Rome, introduced to the capitol in a triumphal car, and hailed in some vain acclamations with the title of Caesar. While John and Stephen were declared marquis of Ancona and count of Romagna, by Nicholas the Fourth, a patron so partial to their family that he has been delineated in satirical portraits imprisoned as it were in a hollow pillar after his decease their haughty behavior provoked the displeasure of the most implacable of mankind the two cardinals the uncle and the nephew denied the election of boniface the eighth and the colonne were oppressed for a moment by his temporal and spiritual arms he proclaimed a crusade against his personal enemies their estates were confiscated their fortresses on either side of the Tiber were besieged by the troops of St. Peter, and those of the rival nobles. And after the ruin of Palestrina or Praeneste, their principal seat, the ground was marked with a ploughshare, the emblem of perpetual desolation. Degraded, banished, proscribed, the six brothers, in disguise and danger, wandered over Europe without renouncing the hope of deliverance and revenge. In this double hope the French court was their surest asylum. They prompted and directed the enterprise of Philip, and I should praise their magnanimity, had they respected the misfortune and carriage of the captive tyrant. His civil acts were annulled by the Roman people, who restored the honours and possessions of the colonna, and some estimate may be formed of their wealth by their losses, of their losses by the damages of one hundred thousand gold florins, which were granted them against the accomplices and heirs of the deceased pope. All the spiritual censures and disqualifications were abolished by his prudent successors, and the fortune of the house was more firmly established by this transient hurricane. The boldness of Sciarra Colonna was signalized in the captivity of Boniface, and long afterwards in the coronation of Lewis of Bavaria, and by the gratitude of the emperor, The pillar in their arms was encircled with a royal crown. But the first of the family in fame and merit was the elder Stephan, whom Petrarch loved and esteemed as a hero, superior to his own times, and not unworthy of ancient Rome. Persecution and exile displayed to the nations his abilities in peace and war. In his distress he was an object, not of pity, but of reverence." The aspect of danger provoked him to avow his name and country, and when he was asked, Where is now your fortress? He laid his hand on his heart, and answered, Here. He supported with the same virtue the return of prosperity, and, till the ruin of his declining age, the ancestors, the character, and the children of Stephan Colonna, exalted his dignity in the Roman Republic, and at the court of Avignon. The Ursini migrated from Spoleto, the sons of Ursus, as they are styled in the twelfth century, from some eminent person who is only known as the father of their race. But they were soon distinguished among the nobles of Rome, by the number and bravery of their kinsmen, the strength of their towers, the honours of the senate and sacred college, and the elevation of two popes, Celestine III and Nicholas III, of their name and lineage. Their riches may be accused as an early abuse of nepotism. The estates of St. Peter were alienated in the favor by the liberal Celestine, and Nicholas was ambitious for their sake to solicit the alliance of monarchs, to found new kingdoms in Lombardy and Tuscany, and to invest them with the perpetual office of senators of Rome. All that has been observed of the greatness of the Colonna will likewise redeem to the glory of the Ursini, their constant and equal antagonists in the long hereditary void, which distracted above two hundred and fifty years the ecclesiastical state. The jealousy of preeminence and power was the true ground of their quarrel. But as a spacious badge of distinction, the Colonna embraced the name of Ghibellines and the party of the empire, the Ursini espoused the title of Guelphs and the cause of the church, The eagle and the keys are displayed in their adverse banners, and the two factions of Italy most furiously raged, when the origin and nature of the dispute were long since forgotten. After the retreat of the popes to Avignon, they disputed in arms the vacant republic, and the mischiefs of discord were perpetuated by the wretched compromise of electing each year two rival senators. By their private hostilities the city and country were desolated, and the fluctuating balance inclined with their alternate success. But none of either family had fallen by the sword, till the most renowned champion of the Ursini was surprised and slain by the younger Stefan Colonna. His triumph was stained with the reproach of violating the truce. Their defeat was basely avenged by the assassination, before the church door, of an innocent boy and his two servants. Yet the victorious Colonna, with an annual colleague, was declared senator of Rome during the term of five years. And the muse of Petrarch inspired a wish, a hope, a prediction, that the generous youth, the son of his venerable hero, would restore Rome and Italy to their pristine glory, that his justice would extirpate the wolves and lions, the serpents and bears, who laboured to subvert the eternal basis of the marble column. End of chapter 69 State of Rome from the Twelfth Century